Thanks, Jane. Thank you very much. Two weeks today, we'll be packing hampers, by the way. So you're most welcome to come to that day. Wonderful day. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. With the Beatitudes, I'll be looking at one verse at a time. But this morning, we're going to take all the rest of the chapter, all in one big chunk. So stay with me on this. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through to the end. Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be, yes, yes, or no, no, anything more than this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn on the other, all turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you than the doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at the age of 15, told his family that he had decided to go to university to study theology. His older brother said to him these words, Don't you know... The church is corrupt and out of touch with the world today. Dietrich replied, if that's the case, I'll help reform the church. At the age of 21, he had completed his doctoral dissertation. At the age of 24, he was appointed lecturer in theology at the University of Berlin. And the age of 27, he had written his second book. We're all a little bit inferior right now, aren't we? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh. In the early 1930s, Germany was suffering from the Great Depression. There was mass unemployment and civil unrest. It had only recently turned from a monarchy to a democracy, to a democratic government. But in 1933, Germans rejected their democracy and handed the reins of power over to one Adolf Hitler, who was named as Chancellor on January 30. Hitler promised to get the economy moving again. He had enticed Christians to vote for him by promising to make Christianity the basis of our whole morality. He assured Christians that they were the most important factor safeguarding our national heritage. He blamed Jews and communists for Germany's problems. Jewish stores were boycotted on April the 1st, and Germans were warned against fraternizing with Jews. Germans who dated or married Jews were charged with polluting the purity of the German, German race. Dietrich, one of the very few Christian leaders to see from the start that what Hitler was four, was too authoritarian, too dictatorial, too unjust, and too warlike. Dietrich preached that Christians have only one Lord, Jesus Christ. He gave a radio talk warning against the dangers of a, of a leader who claimed absolute authority and trampled on basic human rights. That radio talk was cut off before he could finish. How was Dietrich able to see clearly when others were so wrong? Well, in 1930, Dietrich's life was, and these are his words, changed and transformed by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He wrote these words, I discovered the Bible. I had often preached, but I had not yet become a Christian. I'd never prayed, or prayed only very little. 
And then in the Bible, in particular, the Sermon on the Mount freed me from all of that. And since then, everything has changed. It was a great liberation. The lone faculty member of an underground theological seminary, free from Nazi domination, his teaching emphasised the Sermon on the Mount and following Jesus. And he wrote his classic book on the Sermon on the Mount, The Cost of Discipleship. I read that a number of years ago. Let me recommend that to you, The Cost of Discipleship. Taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously, he said, meant love for the brother, love for the enemy, and meant love must include all people, certainly the Jews. And one of Dietrich's statements was this, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come to die. Reflecting on these words, I thought they could be summed up as the very essence of Christian conduct, Christian conduct. In the Beatitudes that we looked at previously over the last few weeks, we looked at the character of the Christian in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through to 16, and now the rest of the Sermon on the Mount turns to the conduct of a Christian, the conduct of a Christian. And particularly chapters 5, 17 to 48, which we read, emphasises the teaching on the law. This is quite a contrast than what we've had looked at previously when Jesus spoke on the Beatitudes and the blessedness to count it great joy when you discover that you're in one of the situations that Jesus highlights because he says God is acting and will act. To deliver, you, to, to, to deliver you from your situation, either in this world or the next world. You are to count it great joy, blessed are you. If the Beatitudes are about what we be, then Christian conduct is about what we do, what we do. And it seems a little bit strange that here the tone of Jesus changes dramatically. Jesus speaks about the law, its demands and obligations. But he does it in a way which is completely new. He spoke not so much in terms of what we do for God, that's old covenant, but in terms of what Jesus does for us, that's new covenant. And here are some of the key statements in this passage. 5 verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Sounds like we should all just give up and go home now, doesn't it? <laughs> we much prefer the Beatitudes. Oh, blessed are you. That's what we want, Jesus. Tell us a little bit more about how blessed we are. But Jesus uses the most extra extravagant language here to emphasize the point that there is no price too high to pay for righteousness. It was the style of speech of the day that people would use exaggeration to bring across their point. 
for example, in 29 and 30, is Jesus really saying that we're to pluck out our eye or to cut off our hand if it causes us to sin? Why does, the question I ask myself, why does Jesus seem to attack us so ruthlessly? Please, Jesus, give me more Beatitudes, more Beatitudes. I love hearing about the poor and what's going to happen to them. I love hearing about the humble and what's going to happen to them. And those words, I think, Jesus teaching the crowd in that, at that time would have had great comfort in knowing that. They may perceive themselves as nobodies, having no one and having nothing. And Jesus saying, I have great promises for you, way beyond what you could ever expect. But then it seems as if Jesus then throws the law back into their faces. The law, of course, is referring to the Mosaic Law, the 613 commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai. We often talk about the commandments as being 10, but there's actually 613 in total. And just beginning to read any of those, we know that the law asks an impossible demand. If we're honest with ourselves, the law exposes the failures of our behaviour. It doesn't let us off the hook. It shines a spotlight on our moral failures and it declares, you are guilty. But there are some laws also, I think, that maybe we can take pride in that we haven't committed. Murder. Sometimes we've wished to murder someone, haven't we? But I doubt if we've gone through with it. So surely, God, that gives me some kind of little credit if you're going to weigh up the tally according to my behaviour. What about adultery? Well, those who have married may have desired to be with another spouse, but something, your loyalty to your spouse has stopped you from doing that. So surely, God, that gives you at least a pass, a pass in that area. What about lying? Well, if we're honest about lying, I doubt if anyone here hasn't lied in some instance. We've told the truth, but sometimes it hasn't been the whole truth. Sometimes we've used a little exaggeration. That fish I caught was this big. <laughs> Perhaps we even told a little white lie on occasions. My dear old mum, before she passed away at the nursing home, she became a little bit confused. And she said to me one day, she said, Neil, I've baked a cake for your sister's birthday. I'm thinking, Mum, you're in the nursing home. How did that happen? But she said, I've run out of icing sugar. Can you take the cake down to the bakery and ask them to ice it for, for you? What was my response to be to that? Sure, Mum, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. And the next week she asked me, how's the birthday cake? The birthday cake's fantastic. I thought I'd just save all the hassle, right? I'd try to explain. I'll just go along with it. God, I'm a liar. 
I put my hand up. But if we're honest with ourselves, I would say we're certainly not compulsive liars, are we? In fact, sometimes we're too honest and the consequences of that hurts us. There might have been an occasion where you've had to be honest with somebody and that's ended up in a broken friendship. So God, if you're going to tally everything up, 51%, just push me over the line. Oh, and then God, don't forget about all the good that I've done either. Think about all those people that I've helped. Oh, that's going to put me way above 50%. If the law is the standard by which my behavior is evaluated, then the good I've done surely outweighs all the bad. God, I'm going to confess I'm nowhere near perfect, but I'm no scoundrel. So just on behaviour alone, I deserve a pass. A high distinction, that's just a dream. A credit, well, that would be good. But just a pass. Just, just push me over the line. But then Jesus goes on and he tells us that his standard is not just what we do, but what we think. We're all doomed, aren't we? We're all doomed when it comes to that as well. Look, I haven't murdered anybody. I have thought about it a couple of times, but I haven't gone through with it. I remember growing up being angry with my brother or sisters. I, I, I confess to that. I confess to that. And according to Jesus' standard, I'm liable for judgment. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for me at all? Is Jesus unreasonable to say the words, you have heard it was said, and then take it to a higher level where it's not only murder, but now he throws in anger as well. If the teaching on the Sermon of the Mount consists of hard teachings, setting ideals which are too high to keep, lovely sentiments but impossible for practical living then I am prone to ignore those ethical standards of behaviour and turn to something else which I know that in some part I'm really not too bad a person. Jesus here prohibits anger, lust, divorce, oaths. We can never restrain ourselves from ever being angry, so are these just high ideals? strenuous demands that they can never be followed in practice so the best thing I can do is to consider them attitudes that I should just try and maintain rather than actions they're either things which I must repent of and try my hardest to obey or they're general principles which need to be followed but look if I muck up here or there it doesn't really matter but then I go on and read these verses in chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be alike a wise man who built his house on rock. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on these will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. 
So I ask, is there a way of interpreting what Jesus says here in this passage without them becoming perfectionist prohibitions? Is there a solution to this dilemma? Dilemma. It's a misinterpretation that Jesus commands us never to be angry and never to call anyone a fool. He knows, Jesus knows, we cannot avoid being angry. The being angry in verse 22 is not a command, by the way. It's a participle, which means an ongoing action. So what Jesus is saying to us is we're not to allow anger to continue, continue rising up within us where it becomes a vicious cycle. We may get angry with another person and then go and insult them. And then what happens is that they get more angry and then they insult us. And this will only lead to trouble. So what's Jesus' words? They're meant to stop us from expressing our anger by insulting another person. In fact, we can appeal to Scripture that Jesus himself was angry. There is a thing of righteous anger which condemns evil and injustice. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus looked around at them with anger. He was angry at the hardness of heart of those who said that it wasn't right to heal a man on the Sabbath. Matthew 23, 17, Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees blind fools. Well, this would contradict verse 22, wouldn't it? If 22 is command. In my reading, I discovered this, and I love what this commentator says. He says that we must take what Jesus has written here as triads, triads. First, there is a command. This is followed by a development of a command and then what we are to do. What we normally do, I think, when we read this passage is we take the command and we feel so bad about it that we kind of ignore what then follows. But it's the third part of the triad that is actually the most important of all. What's Jesus' way? We take Jesus' commands as, and he's described it as this, transforming initiatives which deliver us from anger and killing. A transforming initiative transforms the angry person into a peacemaker. It transforms the relationship from one of being angry into a peacemaking process. It hopes to transform the enemy into a friend. And that is the way of grace. In this way, the emphasis is not so much on the negative prohibitions that we all feel so condemned and so bad. I can't live like that. I can't live like that. But we read this passage in a positive way, seeing the transforming initiatives, that's there his words, not mine, which offer deliverance based on grace. 
And it's these transforming initiatives, he says, which are to be the regular practices which Jesus commanded to us. How does it work out? Well, let's say, for example, we find ourselves in a relationship where anger leads to insults. What we don't want to do, although we may feel like it, is respond with more anger and with more insults, but instead bring peace into that situation and relationship. The emphasis is not so much on the inner attitudes or vague intentions or even moral convictions, but the regular practices that need to be engaged in. So if somebody's really angry at us for some reason, what do we do? We listen rather than accuse. Then after they've had their say, we explain why we feel the hurt that we feel. And rather than attacking the other person, we try to bring peace into the situation. So this now turns it from being an impossible teaching to a problem-solving. It begins with naming the ungodly attitude or emotion which is rising up within us, and we, as Bonhoeffer would say, die to that, we repent from it, and we seek God's grace in the situation. Then we can participate in this transforming initiative, correcting patterns of wrong, not by our own, of course, but by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, turning deliverance from the captivity, turning it into, sorry, deliverance from the captivity of this vicious, vicious cycle. So let's have a look at some of these just, just briefly. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Well, this is a command. But Jesus takes this further and he says this, that wanting someone dead arises from an emotion of anger within us and this may be expressed in insulting the other person by calling them a fool. To break this vicious cycle, we need to stop it and bring into play this transforming initiative. We go to the person who has angered us and we seek reconciliation. You shall not commit adultery. Well, that's a command. What leads a person to commit adultery is that they've looked lustfully at another person. Well, how is that vicious cycle broken? Jesus says we remove the cause of the temptation. Not literally plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand, but removing whatever is prompting you to have those impure thoughts. Number three. Whoever divorces is to be given a certificate. Divorce is allowed if one of the parties has been unfaithful, but the better option, Jesus says, is pursue reconciliation. You shall not swear falsely. That's swearing by anything that means being involved in a false claim. And Jesus says the solution to that is 
let your yes be a yes and let your no be a no. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This law was given so that the punishment would fit the crime. It was never given as a means of retaliation or revenge. And yet so often I hear this quoted in that way, in that framework. When a wrong is committed, then the person should be appropriately punished. Not let off easily, but not punished too harshly. Often this verse is used, isn't it, to get back at another person. If you've done that to me, then I have every right to get back and do the same for you. But Jesus affirms here that we're not to retaliate violently or revengefully by evil means, but using this transforming initiative, turn the other cheek, give our tunic and cloak, go the second mile, give to the beggar and the borrower. And you shall love your neighbour and hate your and you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Hating enemies is the behaviour of tax collectors and Gentiles, says Jesus. We're not to copy their behaviour. Instead, we're to pray for those who persecute us, no matter who they are. So you see, if we focus on the command of the law, it may end that we become self-righteous. You know, I'm doing pretty well. Haven't murdered anybody today. I'm doing pretty good. It's only 10.30 or something. Or the opposite occurs, doesn't it? We break the law and then we think, oh, how guilty am I? How guilty am I? But Jesus' way is never to condemn. Jesus' way is always to bring grace into the situation to transform. That's why he includes not only outward behaviour, but inward attitudes and emotions. And this can only be done, going back to Dietrich's words, come to Christ. Come to Christ and let all that die in you so that he might live in you. We die to self so that Christ might reign in us. Paul writes the same words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11. While we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake. Always, a daily thing. I need to die to this. I need to die to this. I need to be separated from this. That's the negative. Here's the positive. So that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. I think that those who want to make the Sermon on the Mount some kind of impossible high ordeal, high ideal, then they must interpret Chapter 5, verse 5, verse 48, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect, as demanding some kind of moral perfection that none of us can ever live up to. I'm a perfectionist and even I would have trouble with that. But rather the word perfect means complete or all-inclusive in the sense that Loving our enemies is to be included. This is the love that you and I are to show to others, says Jesus. 
Don't be like tax collectors and Gentiles who only love their friends. Oh, anybody can do that. But reach out and love those who are against you, who are persecuting you, who have something against you. In this way, we see the teaching of Jesus not as impossible ideals or idealistic moral perfection, but practical deeds which show love towards our enemies. And in the process, they transform us to transform the other person. Let's pray, shall we? Jesus, we need your grace. We need your grace every day. Every day thoughts come into our head, ungodly thoughts, Lord. We need to put those to death, to be separated from them and positively allow you to live in us and through us. That the life of Jesus might be shown in our mortal bodies. Lord, what a wonderful saviour you are. Not only forgiving us of our sin, not only having heaven for our destination, Lord, but wanting to live in us today. Today. Lord, my prayer is that your life might be seen in our mortal bodies this day, this day. Help us, we pray. We need you, Lord. In your precious name we ask. Amen. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.